Hello, hello. Welcome to the Rehumanize podcast. This is Maria, the editor, chiming in. Um, just to quickly apologize that this episode was a little delayed. Uh, it was meant to be the November episode, um, and Herb Emiliano and our lovely guest Phil, they got the files to me in time, but uh, with everything going on with the Dobbs rally at the end of November and the beginning of December, I just did not get the chance to edit it until now, so I apologize that it was delayed. We work hard to try to get these out to you guys on time, um, but thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you still enjoy the episode. Bye! Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Happy Advent season to everyone who celebrates. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrates. And this is the Rehumanize podcast with Emiliano and... And Herb. And... Jill Eddy. Phil! Oh, you can introduce yourself, Phil. (laughs) Sorry, Um, I got excited. Yeah, Phil Eddy. I'm on the board of Rehumanize. We brought another one of the Rehumanize family on today. Um, we've got Phil Eddy with us. Yeah, Phil is one of the few people who has been involved with Rehumanize for longer than I have, back when it was Life Matters Journal. Phil, were you an original board member? No, I was brought on two years, three years in, maybe. Oh, okay. Longer than me. He can't get rid of me. <laughs> I know. you. Phil also formerly was the president of the board, I believe. Mm-hmm a role currently served by uh, Krista Corbello, who has also been on the podcast, but not with Emiliano. So we'll have to have her back. Yeah, we should uh, definitely do a full, a full board podcast. Maybe we can do that for, for Christmas. That can be the Christmas special. There can be hijinks. I don't know. Ooh, Christmas special. I support that. This is our Advent special and our Hanukkah special and our Thanksgiving special. Cause this is technically the November episode. Yeah. Um, I used to work for rock for life. Um, American Life League and Students for Life. And I'm pretty sure, if I remember my trivia correctly, I brought Amy on for her first rehuman or her first Life Matters Journal speaking gig in Buffalo, New York at a conference. Wow. Yeah. Where was that at? In Buffalo, New York. Um, I organized a regional Students for Life conference. And because I was in charge, I made it CLE. Wow. Good job. Yes. <laughs> Phil, how long have you been in the pro-life movement? Because you're naming sort of like all of the other single-issue pro-life groups, Students for Life, American Life, like all of those guys. When did you enter this world? Um, I started doing local stuff my sophomore year in high school. Um, that's when I first became pro-life. And then uh, my first year, my first summer in college, I interned for Rock for Life uh, doing the summer tour. Um, and then... My third tour, they hired me. Is Rock for Life like Rock the Vote? Um, sure. It was uh, it was founded in response to Rock for Choice, which uh, oh. used to be yeah. Think of all the great bands from the '90s, and then think of them doing horrible things with their voice about abortion. Uh, um, yeah. So Rock for Life formed to work within the music community, um, have bands not only like educate them to promote a pro-life message, but also use them to raise funds for pregnancy centers, um, local organizations. And uh, yeah, it was great. I worked there for a couple of years yeah. and then I'd started doing urban outreach for American Life League in Philadelphia for a couple of years. 
and then I worked with students for life. Nice. We should have like a music yeah, rock episode life. with you. Ooh, we should. We should also bring on uh, Brian Kemper. He was like one of the original Rock for Life. Mm-hmm. Or he was around them for a while. Um, rock for Life's really cool. They're still kind of around. Um, they sort of like pop up and down. I think Students for Life sort of ate them, um, or like they're they're now affiliated with them closely. Um, but I remember I had a lot of friends who did. I think the the last ever Warped tour, they allowed Rock for Life in, and I just remember. Um, and so that's a lot of like pop punk bands. Um, and I remember I had a couple friends who basically did the whole tour with doing pro-life outreach um, amongst all of these people. And they got so harassed because I think Rock for Life does well when they go to like Christian music festivals. Um, but this was totally secular. Um, and it, I just had I, one friend, Hannah, was on the tour and she would she would talk about all the time like, I would go, I would be having so much fun because I'm touring with some of my favorite bands. And then I would uh, watch their sets and they would say things like, and F the that table, that anti-choice table, all of those, Maria bleep me out, but like all of those them. Um, and these were like her favorite bands. I still have t-shirts of some of these bands that she would tell me like, yeah, no, they would just tell all of their fans to go harass us uh, during their sets. Um, but that means that Rock for Life at that time, at least, was making an impact in the culture. They were making people angry. Um, so I've always been a fan of Rock for Life because I think that is one of my favorite stories of like my favorite bands hating the anti-choice people who dared to have a table at Warp Tour. I definitely see my share of harassment, but I'm six foot five. When a band says tells tells people at a, a concert to go harass the person at the Rock for Life table, and I'm there, I don't get any trouble. <laughs> but I've seen people, yeah. I've heard horror stories, especially since most of Rock for Life's um, chapter leaders uh, and volunteer base were females. So yeah. smaller stature, much easier to harass than me. I will say one of my favorite Rock for Life memories was when I went to a Rock for Choice concert and I didn't tell them that I was pro-choice, but they believed I was based on what I was talking to them about. And they actually had me table with them and they fed me hummus and crackers. Wonderful. And I got to ask all sorts of questions about what they were doing and how they operated. It turns out at that point, they had so much trouble getting a band to come do a concert for them because they knew that they would get put on our boycott list and get harassed. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, enough promoting Rock for Life. Start promoting Rehumanize. You're on our board now. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I am excited to have you on the podcast. Phil is, um, he, we're, I want to bring him on more often because he's going to be our like current events guys. Um, we, we normally have like a theme for the podcast episodes, um, but truthfully, I kind of dropped the ball this month. Uh, we try to do an episode at least monthly, and I've just been too busy doing other stuff to prepare anything. Um, and, and I so have, have this been idea. busy moving across nations. Yeah. Emiliano is immigrating. I was busy in Los Angeles and San Francisco and DC and around the world um, making noise about abortion and fetal tissue research. Um, So we have excuses. So sorry that this episode is out super late. Um, It might even not get released till December. But if that's the case, I don't know. Donate us more money so I can hire more people to do this podcast through humanizeintl.org slash donate. 
then you'll have episodes weekly if we get enough funding for it. Um, just kidding. We're very, we're very grateful and we're very sorry that we're getting this episode out so late. Um, but it is going to be a good episode regardless of me and Emiliano's lack of preparation because we have Phil and Phil can talk to us about some current events because Phil reads the news. That's, I think this is really your, your value added Phil is that I, I don't read that. I'm like heavily involved in like political things, but I don't read the news. I, I will like come across an article on Twitter. I just don't even touch Facebook anymore. Uh, and yeah, other than that, uh, I just uh, feed my cat and uh, go to work. So, Phil, what's going on in the world? Uh, well, um, something that you mentioned you wanted to talk about was this documentary called A World Without Down Syndrome. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It's making waves again because uh, the woman who created it, who produced it, Sally Phillips, uh, she's a British actress. Um, you might have seen her in a couple projects here in the U.S. Like the, uh, She has a child with Down syndrome, and she became an advocate for children with Down syndrome because she saw what medical experts were doing to parents once they find out a child in utero has Down syndrome. They're over and over again told, you should have an abortion, you should have an abortion. It's your choice, but have an abortion. It's a really eye-opening documentary. It's available online. Um on Tubi.com or TubiTV.com, T-U-B-I-TV.com. Um, also, if you have a smart TV, they have that there. It's available free. And I think it makes a really great uh, case for why we need to have medical standards when it comes to something like Down syndrome, but also other, I hate saying abnormalities, but problems with children in, ut- in utero uh, that the doctors and the nurses need to have a level of professionalism and not let their own promotion of what they would do come into it unless they're going to promote life. I think they should, but have either of you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. No, I haven't, but it reminds me of um, what you're talking about. Reminds me of a, uh, it was, it was just a news story. I forget what it was on. Um, I can find it, but it was basically about this issue. Like I think when um, when Iceland came out with that headline that rocked the world of like we've eliminated Down syndrome, um, it sort of you know, through eugenic abortion and just aborting nearly one hundred percent of children diagnosed with Down syndrome in utero. Um, they've eliminated Down syndrome. They cured it. Some people even said um, that sort of sparked interest in this idea. And there was an article a couple of years back that had a video attached to it. Um, and I just remember being so outraged by it because they were they were they were doing both sides. They were covering pro life activists um, and you know pro choice families that were that had children with Down syndrome. Um, and it was so interesting because I remember they had interviewed. I think about like four families, like two pro-life, two pro-choice. Um, and the, in the, the two families that were pro-life included, you know, advocates who were self-advocates. They were um, children or now adults with Down syndrome. Um, and basically, you know, they make the point that a lot of people make, which is I, I, I'm happy I wasn't killed before I was born. Happy there was not an act of violence committed against me. Um, 
And for the pro-choice side, there was one couple that did choose to get an abortion as a result of the Down syndrome diagnosis. Um, but then there was another couple who did choose life, but were making the point that, um, you know, that, that it should be a choice and they're happy that they had that choice. Um, and I just remember like watching it and feeling like I was losing my mind because they were saying it right in front of their child with Down syndrome. Um, and it was like, this girl was just sitting there hearing her parents say like, well, we had considered it. We knew it would be harder. Um, and I just like the way that we, we talk about eugenic abortions, um, aborting because of Down syndrome or any other, uh, you know, fetal abnormality, anormality, um, they call it different things. It's always just like, there are people with those conditions who are alive, like they can hear you. They are often in the room when we're talking about it as if it is a thought experiment or this like hypothetical thing that like you can eliminate Down syndrome or any other condition. Um, so I've not seen that documentary, but I am always interested in how the media portrays this issue. I mean, it's the same thing with like foster children or adopted children or any like children in poverty. Like they're always like othered and made the uh, hypothetical situation that, oh, this could be eliminated if we just, you know, just killed everyone like who was poor like how to eliminate poverty go to war eliminate eliminate the problem not the person exactly um that reminds me of uh that video that a french uh like down syndrome advocacy organization had produced i don't think it was necessarily even like a pro-life group um, but just like it was, I think the video was called smile. Um, and it had, uh, it was just like a five minute short video about, um, uh, children and adults with down syndrome, um, just like telling their stories, um, giving like statistics on, you know, uh, parents who, uh, abort due to a down syndrome diagnosis, like all often worry about like the quality of life of their child, but down syndrome people with down syndrome uh, have like among the highest like levels of, of happiness um, uh, among just any, any group of people. Um, and so it was, uh, and then that video I think got censored by the French government. Like it was forced to be taken down from YouTube or like demonetized or something like that. I don't know. There was some, a backlash against it because it was saying that it was uh, pressuring pressuring people's choices. So, uh, how is the video? Um, what what is kind of like the take of the the documentary? Well, I take the little two pronged. Uh, one is there needs to be um, compassion for the parent, and there there needs to be a way that you can offer services without showing bias towards promoting abortion. To them. Um, she said that she told medical professionals right off the bat, I'm not having an abortion. And yet she was continually told, you know, this is an option. Don't bring it up. If you're told not to. An unfortunate mm-hmm. position she takes is that abortion is okay. It's the woman's choice. Um, I don't, get the this I, I I just don't get where you go from this is a child 
I shouldn't have an abortion. But it's your choice if you want to have the abortion. I just don't get it. I don't see that. But it is really well done. It's only an hour long. So it's a quick watch. But I highly recommend it. And it's free on TV. Yeah, that's always the... The, the double-edged sword of wanting to recommend media to people. I feel like I'll watch a documentary or a piece of media or whatever, and I'm like, this is so good. And then I think about it for a second. I'm like, well, okay, well, it's made by pro-abortion people. Don't worry about that. Still watch it. It's still worth watching. I've, I've like, suggested um, content because I just think it's interesting if it has to do with abortion or whatever. Like, I loved um, the movie Obvious Child. It was that one, uh, like, abortion rom-com it was horrible um but it's definitely worth watching to like learn about the pro-choice mind and how they see abortion and, and stuff and i remember i like said that to someone i was like yeah you should definitely watch obvious child it's worth watching and they were like you are pro-abortion don't don't tell people to watch that movie it is pro-abortion propaganda and i was like yeah but you should still see it um so recommendations by Phil or by anyone on the Rehumanized podcast are not necessarily endorsement of all the views that the filmmakers hold. Artistic endorsement or research, research-based endorsement. Speaking of, um, Amazon Prime just released a new series called The Wheel of Time. It's based on a book series that took two decades, three decades to write. And in this, there's quite a bit of violence in it. So I don't necessarily recommend it for people who are squeamish about that kind of stuff, but they have a group of people in there called the Tinkers who are espousing a nonviolent um, way of life to the confusion of other people. And um, I thought it was very fascinating. I, I rewatched a couple of the scenes just to be like, wow, they're saying that this is great. Um, they, uh, they're in it. You can definitely see that the, the, uh, uh, the, the Gypsy, Sinta, Romy, Travelers, Roma, Traveler people are where they got the inspiration for them. But there was a great quote from one of the characters um, talking to another character who wanted revenge for what happened to his family. And she says, what great revenge, what greater revenge against violence than peace? And what greater revenge against death than life? I just thought that was so great for a a fictional group of people who do not fight. They they run, they hide, they live another day. Yeah. I love that this was sort of supposed to be a current events episode, but it's turning a little bit into a media review episode, which I also love. <laughs> I was just thinking that too. I was like, ah, let's steer the ship away. Uh, Phil, talk okay. about Liz Brunig. Okay, so oh. Liz Brutnick is uh-huh. a columnist. Um, she also does the uh, uh, KCRW Left, Right, and Center podcast. She is a... We've talked about Liz Brunick a, a couple of times on the podcast, oh, just yeah. like okay. in Excellent. passing, as just just like in, as an in passing Absolutely. reference. Yeah, She's a democratic socialist. Does it make she, it on or does Maria cut it out? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, she is a democratic socialist. Um, she's a leftist and she is also very pro-life. She espouses the consistent life ethic. And she wrote a column, um, somewhat recently called Not That Innocent. And she talked about how so often we focus on people who were innocent and given the death penalty, uh, and later exonerated. And she says that going with that line of argumentation is wrong for two big reasons. One, 
no one deserves to be executed. We don't support execution for people who did commit a crime, even if it was a heinous crime. And two, when the focus is on innocent, that leaves a lot of the fundraising for people who were guilty of what crime they were com- or what crime they committed um, and are still on the on death panel, or on death row. It takes the focus off of them and makes it more difficult for them to then go and try to get an appeal or have their conviction overturned. Um, I thought that was really interesting. It's an interesting way to look at it, that by emphasizing innocence, we're taking away the pathway for other people who were guilty from trying to not be executed. I think that's a really, it was probably... uh, the the focus on innocence i mean it's it's a logical one in in some ways um uh, saying that you know this is bad because we're but there's an implicit endorsement of the death penalty in that we're the death penalty is bad because it's inaccurate like if it was accurate then it would be fine and i think like i think we've as anti-death penalty um uh, groups go have kind of like backed ourselves in a corner a little bit using that rhetoric. I think now we've uh, started moving away a little bit more from that rhetoric and um, more towards just the universal, like, no, no, we shouldn't kill people. But it probably like started off as like an economization, like, Oh, look, this is bad because it's like, it's not economically efficient. It's not, uh, it doesn't do the job well, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly easier to argue that against the death penalty for those practical reasons. Like, I know, like we we do it all the time um, because, I mean, honestly, for some people, it's just more convincing um, to to hear that it is not economically practical or whatever. Um, and I always feel a little silly making that argument because it's like this isn't why I'm against it. Like it. If the death penalty was much more in taxes, I would not, I would not necessarily, um, you know, I, if it saved money to execute people, I, that doesn't mean I would support it. So it feels a little dishonest to constantly be being like, conservatives, look, the death penalty is bad for this reason. And uh, recently, a South Carolina uh, newspaper, the state, put out an article going in depth with people who worked for the state's death apparatus in terms of they were the people who helped execute other people. And it looked at what it does to them, their mental health. It tears them down. Some of them talked about wanting to commit suicide before they left. It's not the primary reason, but it's it's a side reason. Nobody likes killing. I mean, in World War II, uh, the, the the death camps like Auschwitz were not uh, what what Hitler first had in mind in terms of killing people, primarily Jews, that he wanted to get rid of. He had uh, on the Eastern Front a uh, special unit called Einsatzgruppen, and their sole job was to go into a community after the, the German front line had passed and take all the Jewish people and execute them by firing squad. And it was wearing the soldiers down so much that their officers thought there needs to be a better way to kill people. It's a horrible way of thinking about it. But even people who hated the people that they were killing, it was wearing their mind down. Yeah. Rachel McNair, um, Dr. Rachel McNair, 
of the Consistent Life Network uh, has done a lot of work on this. She is um, kind of big within the psychology academic world. Um, and she coined the, the, the phrase um, PITS, perpetration-induced traumatic stress. Um, and it essentially is sort of the study, she, she studies that phenomenon of how people involved in violence in, in many different forms um, develop a, a kind of PTSD um, or, or trauma from being forced to participate in violence or choosing to participate in violence. That it does have a real effect on people. Um, I think it was in, a, in 2019. It was whatever our last in-person conference was, so I think 2019, pre-COVID. Um, we had a panel on uh, people who had participated in some form of um, state-sanctioned violence um, as the aggressor or working for the aggressor or as part of the system. Um, and it included a former abortion worker, uh, a former um, a, a veteran, uh, someone who was in the U.S. military, um, and a former executioner. Uh, his name was Jerry Givens, and he, um, the late Jerry Givens, he actually died, um, I think, last year. He uh, was formerly um, involved in the apparatus to to execute people, um, and he later became an outspoken advocate against the death penalty. Partially talking about the toll it took on him and you know the correctional officers who have to keep that system going um, because it's not really the it's not just one person. It's not like it's one guy that um, injects you with something. It, it's everyone working on the prison that day. It's all of the people that, you know, file all the paperwork to make that decision, you know, be carried out. Um, and for a lot of them, it is traumatic. Um, it can be very difficult to watch someone die um, and to be a part of the reason they're dying every day. Um, we see that in the people who have, you know, left the abortion industry. Um, we see that with veterans um, who are involved in the violence of war, uh, and the death penalty is no exception. Speaking of war, uh, I shared an article called The High Cost of War, of the War in Afghanistan, um, and it was, uh, it basically summarized some research that was done, uh, I believe it was Brown University, uh, yes, Brown University's Cost of War Project, and they took a look at the cost uh, in, in human lives uh, for the entire period that the U.S. was in Afghanistan. And while the official total of soldiers killed was 2,448, U.S. contractors was 3,846. Even more military contractors were killed than soldiers, which I thought was really, really interesting because we're essentially outsourcing war to companies that have a vested interest in expanding and prolonging conflict. They make more money the longer the war goes on. Mm -hmm. And obviously these contractors, um, because they are private, are under way less scrutiny than um, the U.S. military is, which already is obviously getting away with war crimes constantly. Um, these contractors are pretty horrific when you look into some of the stuff that they've done. Um, I think, Phil, the... The, uh, the study that you're talking about, Rehumanize, actually covered on our blog. Um, 
I think Judith Evans was our staff writer who tackled this. Um, and she she focused more on the the monetary cost of war in uh, you know to the U.S. taxpayer. Um, and reading the, I, I skimmed the the actual study, and I was like, Judith, write about this, sum it up for me. Um, and like reading it, it's it's kind of like crazy making how much money was spent given to these private companies uh, because you're like, wow, what, you know, what, what could we have done with that money if it didn't go to enriching these people and, you know, paying them to, you know, arm themselves and arm terrorist groups. And it's, it's genuinely crazy making. Um, I, when I look at the amounts of money, like in the in the trillions of dollars that go into the violence of war and these corporations, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like I, there's just imagine how many crisis pregnancies we could have intervened in if we weren't giving that money to Halliburton and Blackwater and all the other empires of evil. Yeah, it was something like over nine hundred billion dollars in interest payments alone on what we mm-hmm. borrowed as a nation, not just what we've spent, but what we borrowed to finance the war in Afghanistan. That just blows my mind. That's interest payments. Can you imagine having that level of debt and all that interest bearing down on you for generations? I mean, we're not going to be able to pay that off anytime soon. Yeah. I think when I was in like... I don't know, sixth or seventh grade, I wrote an article about in, in the school newspaper um, uh, about like the Iraq war and the costs of the Iraq war and what we could have gotten inside of the cost for the Iraq war. And it was, you know, like uh, healthcare for everyone, housing for everyone, like That's universal education, things like that. Um, and like, that was like that that was the bills that had already stacked up by 2007 2006 like in 3 years of yeah. war so take that times like 5 6 i know and that that also drives me crazy because it's like the libertarian in me is you know of course we could we could fund healthcare and we could fund education and we can fund infrastructure and all of these wonderful projects that Emiliano wants to take my tax dollars for. Um, but the libertarian in me is like, or we could just let people keep their money. Um, like, why is it going to Eric Prince? Why can't it just stay with me? Um, it, it, and of course, you know, I let, let's, let's have those good programs too or whatever, but at the very least, let's not be given and get to these, these private corporations who are literally just using it for evil. Um, but again, I mean, even this conversation, it, I always focus on it um, with with war. Um, but it's similar to the death penalty thing. You know, I'm not against war because it costs a lot of money. Um, it just makes me lose my mind how much money we're spending on it. Um, but I'm against it because we are murdering people. Like we are actively going to people's countries, innocent people who are not involved in conflict, and bombing them, bombing, ruining their infrastructure, ruining any chance for them to have a normal life, um, creating a refugee crisis. Uh, every every issue that, um, that war leads to, aside from just the direct acts of violence that we perpetrate, 
Um, I'm against it for those reasons. But then when I look at the money, I'm like, even I'm like, wow, why isn't everyone against this? Even if I'm pro-violence, I should be against war. The coupon so knows fun. that we never got a good deal on any of that. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so actually, you, I wanted... Well, go ahead, Phil. Oh, no, go ahead. I, I was going to say, um, in a recent pod, Rehumanized podcast, you had someone come on and talk about the war on terror and how the overwhelming majority of terror incidents are people fighting a foreign enemy that is a foreign entity that is occupying them. And it's not just the toll that our war takes on the people of Afghanistan. It's how many other instances throughout the world of, of violence were because of our actions there or in, not, not because, but in response to our actions there. I was going to say, I, when we were talking about the death penalty, I was uh, particularly the issue of innocence. Um, I was getting refrustrated at, um, a, an event I planned a couple weeks ago, last month, um, the uh, one of the, the Boston bomber, um, Jokar Sarnev, um, his trial uh, was going back up to the Supreme Court to uh, for them to determine whether or not to reinstate the death penalty um, against him. And so I uh, I was like, okay, like we're we're gonna rally outside the court. We're gonna. Um, you know, put out press releases, we're going to make statements um, calling for the Supreme Court to to choose life, choose mercy, choose justice in this case, um, and not reinstate the death penalty like the, um, the Trump administration's DOJ had requested. Uh, and I remember I was reaching out to people, people who typically like have been anti-death penalty um, and asking them to participate in this campaign that, that we were running. Um, and I had people, not not everyone, most people were still supportive, um, but I had people say to me like, well, we do know this one's guilty. Um, and so they were they were less excited to be involved. Um, and, you know, these weren't the, the people who necessarily are typically on the front lines on this issue, but it were people, it was people who do agree with us who want to see the death penalty abolished. Um, but in the case of someone who is, uh, who is, is guilty, who has admitted it, um, who there's, you know, ample evidence that they were involved. Uh, it's, it's a little harder to, to argue. Um, and we, when we were there, we, we talked about, uh, cause we did rally outside the court. We partnered with death penalty action and, um, the Catholic Worker House and of DC and a couple other um, people who are family members of uh, Boston bombing victims, as well as uh, people who are have just been involved in the criminal justice system um, and the the death penalty system in the U.S. Um, so we did have people come out, um, but when we were there, we were reflecting on the fact that you know one of the core reasons that the brothers claimed to be inspired to do this horrific attack against um, Americans at the, the Boston Marathon was because of U.S. foreign policy. It, it was a direct response to um, the the fact that we are bombing people in the Middle East, um, pre- predominantly Muslim people in the in the Middle East, uh, and just the cycle of how violence begets violence begets violence, where we have, you know. If, if you want to blame 9-11 on it, um, it obviously our engagements in um, in the Middle East don't start there, but it's sort of an easy starting place for a lot of people. Uh, but that inspired us to be in Afghanistan and Iraq 
Um, and then that violence inspired violence in the U.S. protesting um, the, these wars. And now we have the further violence of the state seeking the death penalty against those who perpetrated that violence. Um, and it's just like, I don't know, we were, we were talking about how this is such a clearly like consistent life ethic issue. It's like, this is, this is what we're talking about. If we could have stopped the violence of war or the death penalty or um, and any of these things that have led to this, this state, we could have put a wrench in this. Um, but because we have not yet won, we still have war and the death penalty and abortion and all of the, the sources of trauma and violence that we have. Um, this man's life is in the balance of the Supreme Court. Um, and that just sucks. It just sucks. And it's hard to get people to care when it is a guilty person, particularly a, a guilty Muslim man. I think the uh, interconnection of like the cycles of violence and uh, removing people for convenience and U.S. imperialism uh, comes together in an interesting way in the last story that we wanted to talk about with um, – the Supreme Court in Colombia uh, looking to uh, possibly decriminalize abortion there. Um, and to give like a little bit of context on Colombia, uh, it like many Latin American countries uh, officially uh, is criminalizes abortion. Um, although uh sensational stories about uh, women being arrested for like miscarriages or stuff like that um, are lots of times not true or sensationalized um, by the media. Um, obviously if women are criminalized for miscarriages, that's a, a wrong and bad thing. Um, but lots of the time stories that come out in the international press blaming uh, Latin American governments for uh, criminalizing abortion. Uh, it's not uh, always true uh, that people are arrested for miscarriages. Sometimes it's actual like infanticide, but in Colombia, um, which has been ruled by a conservative government really for the past 60 or 70 years, um, during the period of its uh, pretty long civil war um, and is still in control of the country now, um, is now looking at uh, the same wave of abortion deregulation that has been sweeping the rest of Latin America. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at abortion deregulation in the context of the Colombian Civil War and in um, the hundred-year-long history of U.S. imperialism in the country as well, um, that you see some of the same uh, in the Spanish press, um, the Spanish-language press, some of the same justifications um, for why abortion needs to be legal um, is that 
oh, we have too many rowdy young men that caused all of our like civil war and violence and uh, crime issues in the country and that abortion will uh, free us from just the violence of uh, misfit young men who uh, weren't given, you know, basically let's eliminate poor people to uh, solve our issues of violence. Um, and it's, it's really, I don't know, disturbing to me, the, uh, just kind of lack of nuance that is given by the American and European press over, uh, issues like abortion in Latin America, where there are like, it's not really a left or right issue, um, because there are plenty of, uh, left-wing governments like, uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela, who still uh, have maintained through decades of leftist rule, um, uh, maintaining abortion uh, illegal. So it's I think it's painted as kind of like this uh, wave of wave of liberalism, but we don't we don't see uh, that in countries like Colombia, um, accompanied by. Uh, you know, more generous social policies or anything like that. I think it really becomes suspect that the normal uh, narrative about abortion when in Latin America, we're seeing uh, right-wing countries like Colombia having this question um, while left-wing countries like uh, Venezuela and uh, Bolivia, Nicaragua um, have largely evaded this kind of green wave movement. Just to let everyone know where things stand there, uh, a case has gone to their uh, su- Supreme Court, whatever, I forget what they call it there, um, but of the nine justices, one has gone to the media and said he wants to decriminalize abortion. Now, as a judge, you can't really go and say what you're going to do before you make your decision um, or even before you hear the case. So he is being asked to recuse himself and a different judge is going to see if he gets kicked off for this case, um, this judge who will make the decision, they were supposed to make the decision Friday, this past Friday. Uh, they did not yet. And what we know about him, from what I gather, from what I researched, I don't speak Spanish, but um, he graduated from a Catholic university and he was a, cons- he's a conservative politician in their national assembly. Conservative Party there is very anti-abortion. So I'm assuming if he does decide to make this person recuse themselves, uh, I'm assuming that he probably would, um, which will then give pro-lifers a better chance with the ruling, because as it stands, they only need one person, I guess, to they have like four committed people who would decriminalize abortion there. So we have a little bit better chance. Um, chances are we wouldn't get a final ruling until January. And I have one more yeah. story to share that is positive. Go for it. Anybody wants to hear it? Okay, so. Yes, let's round out this episode with a positive story for once. It's about infighting in the pro-choice movement. Woohoo! Um, I shouldn't love go that. We, we love <laughs> to see that. Yes, so NARAL Pro-Choice America, which is the first big national uh, abortion advocacy organi- uh, organization in the U.S., uh, they recently decided that they are going to 
get rid of their affiliate program. There were 11 state affiliates. Uh, get rid of them to focus on a chapter program, which means that these chapters they can control directly, whereas the state affiliates could do whatever they wanted to with support from the national. Um, these state affiliates are not happy about that. And I talked to Jim Sedlak from American Life League. And I wanted to get a little more insight as to what he thinks is the reason why they're doing this. And he believes that it is Planned Parenthood, which has reorganized so many of their local their local regions into stronger ones. Like here in New York state, half of the state affiliates became one. Um, and since they're taking such a, a focus on the local level, they're all being squeezed out and decides they're just going to focus on the national level, which to be honest is flashier. Um, when you have big campaigns, you get more attention at the national level than you would if you're doing it in just the local community. So with the thought that particularly with, the upcoming Supreme Court case, um, possibly turning abortion over to the states. It's weird to see a national organization decide that they want to diminish their local efforts because they are going to have to fight in every state soon. Um, but it's good to see in fighting. It makes them weaker. Um, I know it's a, it's a pain. I've been involved in so many movements, especially animal rights movements. There's a lot of infighting. Um, but it does diminish the effectiveness of an organization if their grassroots has, if they've turned on their grassroots. So I think it's interesting how after like years of the, a, a lot of kind of uh, grassroots groups uh, accusing uh, the, uh, the large mainstream groups like NARAL of kind of like not going hard enough uh, that it's not, now the grassroots separating itself from the larger organization, but the larger organization just kind of structurally trying to regroup the, the grassroots. Um, so yeah, I, like I said before, like this is, uh, I think a, a kind of a pivotal moment in changing the, the, the terms of the debate and the terms of the organizational structures of the groups that have been kind of at the head of the, the pro-life pro-choice fight for the past 50 years. Um, so yeah. this seems like another element of, of that, this restructuring by NARAL. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've been super interested in the, the infighting among pro-choice and pro-abortion people. Um, because I, I think even that distinction, the pro-choice versus pro-abortion people, um, is really highlighted in what you sort of mentioned, the the, the local organizers and often the, the abortion workers um, and the, the sort of fundraisers and the political people, um, the, the sort of difference between someone who works at Planned Parenthood or NARAL um, and someone who maybe works at an independent abortion clinic or actually works at, you know, a, at a Planned Parenthood as opposed to the Planned Parenthood lobbying arm. Um, you sort of see that, that difference of, you know, I, I, I think every day on Twitter, I'll see a, a pro-choice person, someone who supports legal abortion, call themselves pro-abortion. And then a different person who supports legal abortion say, nobody is pro-abortion. Um, and they'll get yeah. that sort of debate with each other of like, no, we both 
we both support legal abortion, so we are pro-abortion. No, no one's pro-abortion. Um, and it's super fascinating to watch from the outside um, because I, when I first entered this movement, I definitely was on the side of like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm against people who support legal abortion, but I, I I'll I'll call them by the term that they want. I'll call them pro-choice. Like I would sort of roll my eyes at the pro-life people who insisted upon calling them pro-abortion, and I would be like. Well, they say they're not pro-abortion; they're pro-choice. Um, and, and now, now they're taking that label them. and run with it. Yeah, I see the more radical um, uh, parts of the movement be like, "No, we're pro-abortion. Abortion's good." And I mean, it makes sense. They always say, "Like, why?" It, we sort of always question them of why should it be rare? Why should it be safe, legal, and rare if it's not killing someone? If it's just a medical procedure? If it's healthcare? Why do you want it to be rare? Um, and you know, pro-life people said that for years and we were, we were hoping that they would be like, oh yeah, you're right. Abortion should be illegal. Um, but instead many of them have just said, they're oh, like, oh yeah, no, yeah, you're right. Is- yeah, you're, you're right. Abortion shouldn't be rare. We want more of it. Um, which is, and it, it's so interesting to me because I still see people, I think it's a lot of, um, a lot of boomers, a lot of older people, um, but not exclusively, who, if I now say pro-abortion, because I do sort of make the choice to say, you know, pro-choice and pro-abortion people, um, they'll be like, no one is pro-abortion. What are you talking about? And I'm like, uh, you're wrong. They're calling themselves that. Like, listen to your side. You should have um, some screenshots I, I at the ready. So, I know. I, I really should, but I don't even need to because I feel like I used to type in, you know, pro-abortion on on Twitter or Facebook or, or, you know, even Google or anything. And when you would type that in, what you would see is pro-life people calling other people pro-abortion or people saying no one is pro-abortion. And now when you type that in, you will just see someone say, I am pro-abortion or like someone's Twitter name being like the pro-abortion mermaid. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that, that's what they call themselves. They are pro-abortion. But there is definitely conflict within the movement about whether or not they are pro-abortion or to what level they are pro-abortion um and so it's super fascinating to watch i'm like a little obsessed with it so now the question is how do we uh exploit that division i know for real uh well so that's a really interesting thing i remember um the sort of start of the, or I would say the start of the the pro-abortion, um, in air quotes, movement compared to separating themselves from the wider pro-choice or reproductive rights movement, um, so-called reproductive rights movement, uh, I feel like came with like shout your abortion. I think like the, the sort of abortion storytellers were some of the first to um, to share that. And I remember, or to, to sort of, be outwardly pro-abortion. And I remember um, thinking when I would read a lot of those stories, uh, you they, they're they kind of not shy about um, highlighting that abortion is complicated for a lot of people, including for a lot of pro-choice people. Like if you read the stories on Shout Your Abortion on the website or um, even that they share on social media, a lot of them I'm like, this sounds like a, a pro-life testimony of someone talking about how they felt coerced into getting an abortion and how um, it left them traumatized. And it was this horrible thing that happened to them. Um, But it usually ends with, but I'm happy I had the choice. Uh, And I remember when that, that kind of rhetoric first started a few years ago, 
um, and people talking about, you know, no, we are pro-abortion. Abortion is a good. Abortion is a sacrament. Abortion is healthcare. Abortion is essential. Like all of these these taglines that they would use. Um, a lot of pro-life people said, oh, wow, they're pro-choice people are going to see that. Normal pro-choice people are going to see that and realize that they're they're not on the same side, you know, like they, they do support safe, legal and rare. They don't think abortion is a moral good or um, even a neutral. They think it's a bad, they think it's a necessary evil. Um, and I think I, along with a lot of people sort of thought like, oh, it's good that they're, that they're talking about abortion in this positive light because it's going to show how, you know, outrageous it is. Um, and all these pro-choice people who were sort of in the moderate or in the middle would rebel and say, no, I'm, an I'm anti-abortion. I'm anti-late term abortion at least. Um, but unfortunately I don't think that has happened as much as I've wanted it to. Um, I feel like I just sort of see pro-choice people be silent on the issue. Um, even if, you know, if you're to poll them, they might say, you know, I, I support legal abortion. Um, but realistically when you actually press them on it, they don't really like abortion after 12 weeks or maybe 15 weeks. They're sort of more in line with the, the, a lot of Western Europe's laws of, you know, it's first trimester only, maybe only chemical abortion. Um, they don't like the dismemberment that's involved in surgical abortion. Um, but you know, they're still pro-choice cause they're not, they're not, they're not life begins at conception, ban all abortion pro-lifers like I am. Um, and I sort of, had hoped because that's that's the majority of America. It's the majority of voters. They're they're somewhere in the middle on the issue, um, and I sort of hoped that those people would rebel against you know the 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 abortion the abortionists the pro abortionists um, who were pushing that abortion is good. You know, no limits on abortion. Fully, you know, the kind of Virginia and New York style um, e extremism of no limits, hardly any regulations, even on, you know, third trimester abortions, um, elective abortions. But ultimately that hasn't really happened. It hasn't materialized. They've been kind of silent on the issue. Um, I think because they're ashamed in being pro-life, like they're afraid of, even if they're against late-term abortion and they kind of assume everyone else is against late-term abortion, they're not going to push against Planned Parenthood or um, the, the pro-abortion people in their lives. And so it allows the overturn, Overton window to just shift and shift and shift until no one, hardly no one actually believes the, the extremist abortion rhetoric that the, the Democratic Party actually um, is endorsing with their candidates when they have people like um, Beto and uh, Buttigieg refusing to to name any limit on abortion that they would that they would support, um, which I mean is just like that is outlandish. No one, very few people actually support abortion until the moment of birth. Um, like that is not something that a, a normal human being is comfortable with being legal. Um, and that's the only thing that they the sort Democratic of, Party has been allowed itself to like push itself, yeah. like quote-unquote left on yeah yeah i mean it's it, it's kind of mind-blowing that this I, I i don't know the the cowards that are the 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 middle ground on abortion in this country um when when polled are like pretty pro-life they support um you know parental involvement laws they support waiting periods they support you know like these they support the hyde amendment and bans on taxpayer funding of abortion um 
Like we have these like huge pro-life constituencies made up of, you know, liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, Christians, non-Christians, like across like all demographics, we have people supporting anti-abortion laws, the laws that um, we support that include regulations of, um, of abortion in some way, if not outright bans. Um, but they're afraid to, to sort of do it publicly or to, to press the Democratic Party on it because there is the shame of being, you know, the lame pro-lifer like us. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to look like a pro-lifer. <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. You are, you're anti-woman. Um, we have like, a, I, I really blame it on like a major issue, I- image problem that our movement has um, because the way that, you know, the, the party, the Democratic Party particularly, like has moved on abortion since the the sort of rise of the pro-abortion movement um, has been so drastic and it hasn't happened on the right. Like we we do have some good governors pushing things like heartbeat laws, which are pretty, you know, pretty impressive from a pro-life standpoint. Um, we do have the barrier of Roe in our way that hopefully um, will fall with the upcoming Supreme Court's term. Um, but it's... It, I, I still see much of the rights, um, you know, Republican lawmakers and states, they're pushing things like parental involvement laws or um, this incrementalist legislation um, instead of the, the outright bans on abortion that, you know, I, I would prefer personally. Um, whereas on the left or, you know, in, you know, we, we just had Teresa on to, to talk about how it's not necessarily a left versus right issue, but, you know, in, in the Democratic Party, it, they're losing that nuance. They're pushing it as far and far as far as it can possibly go in these states like New York. Um, and I'm like, well, why aren't we that extreme? <laughs> why aren't we? Why aren't we saying life at conception if they're basically at the point of life at birth now? Yeah, and that was a rant. It, it's something that you've noticed through throughout the last couple of decades. The the large abortion groups, their official lines while they've been tailored a certain way they never found a a abortion restriction that they couldn't fight against i mean if it's like um i remember when uh in utero surgeries became a thing they opposed it they opposed it because it's humanizing the child um violence against pregnant women nope can't have that because that would humanize the child now it seems like you're right at the the base of the supporters has moved the goalpost farther and farther. And it's finally matching up to the unspecified, uh, how would I put it? The unspecified radicalism that was there before, but couched in nice terms like safe, legal, rare. Yeah. So this was how it was supposed to uh, wrap up with a high note. Yes. Oh, yeah. this, this, this is how we were wrapping up the podcast with a high note. Yes. I've never been positive in my life. Um, but no, there is, there, that, that is a high note, I think, that there is that division. Um, because I like to think that the pro-life movement is only kind of getting stronger and more united. Um, I mean, just as an example, uh, this upcoming rally outside the Supreme Court for Jobs, Dobbs v. Jackson, which has the potential to overturn Roe, um, we have uh, basically the whole movement coming together, what, what I see as the whole movement, um, 
to to support um, the governor in this case and the attorney general, as we're arguing, um, essentially to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is huge. You know, in the past we've had these abortion-related Supreme Court cases that are about regulation or about um, you know some 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 sort of thing that doesn't really get at the heart of the issue, which is that abortion is violence against the unborn and that the state has an interest in preventing that violence and protecting life. Um, and I can, I don't think I've announced this on the podcast yet, but one of the speakers at the pro-life rally that's happening outside of the court is Rehumanize International founder, Amy Murphy, um, which is kind of huge that we have, like, uh, she identifies, we, I, I helped color the sign earlier today that she'll be holding. It says, like, queer Latina rape survivor against abortion. Um, and that that's sort of representative of the pro-life side isn't necessarily something that we would have seen um, in the 90s when Playgal was getting kicked out of the March for Life. Or, um, you know, I know that Teresa Bukovinak is also speaking. Um, it's an all, I, I just learned that it's an all-female docket of speakers, which is kind of cool, um, defending the pro-life position outside the court. Um, but Teresa, she openly identifies as a progressive and a liberal and a socialist sometimes um, when she's feeling like it. Um, and she's <laughs> representing the pro-life movement. And of course, there's there's all these traditional conservative people that are also going to be there, I'm sure. But I think it really shows how much the movement in recent years has got its act together and said, you know, we need everyone on board on this issue. Like, we don't care that you are gay or liberal or all of these all of these things that we normally don't love. Um, we're willing to work with you to end the violence of abortion. Um, and I think in the ways that the pro-choice movement have, uh, pro-choice slash pro-abortion movements um, have been dividing, we've been uniting. And I think that that's really exciting. So that is that is a positive note. And it's a reminder to join us outside the court on uh, December 1st for Dobbs v. Jackson. Um, we will be protesting. We printed a bunch of signs. I am coloring them all tonight. Um, so please, please, please come. I hope Maria gets this out before then. Um, she probably will. She's the best. Uh, I always feel bad. We, I send her the episodes like on the last possible day of the month. Um, so thank you, Maria. Leave this in, Maria. Leave my, my comments about you in. You are the best. Everyone, everyone say thank you, Maria, in the comments of this post. Um, but yeah, that's a positive note. And also a positive note, we're about to overturn Roe v. Wade and abolish abortion in America. So I call that positive. Don't quote me on that if the decision comes back and it's not in our favor. <laughs> well, there's the positive. All right. So this was the Rehumanized right, podcast. Yeah, yeah. We've been recording for an hour. I'm done. Um Phil, do you have anything? Do you have anything to promote or anything you want to share? Uh, to promote Rehumanize. Yeah, this is a great organization I work with called Rehumanize International. Great, I'll check them out. Phil, also, I didn't plug this in the beginning. Um, I'm gonna for 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 Phil. I'm gonna promote going vegan because Phil is one of the um, the pro life vegans in our little community. Um, and for that, I thank Phil and the animals. Thank Phil. Thank you. It's been almost two decades now. It's wild to think that. I feel so old. I mean, I feel old in the animal yeah. movement and in the vegan or in the pro-life movement. I woke up to a pig being slaughtered right next to my house. Oh. Um, so that might, yeah, uh, that, that was a little push 
towards. Why, why would you? Why would you share that? <laughs> well, good. Everyone, imagine a pig being slaughtered, um, and consider going vegan. Just kidding. This is not a position of Rehumanize International. You don't have to be vegan to be involved. The consistent life ethic is about human rights. You don't necessarily need to be vegan. You just should also be vegan, in my personal opinion, uh, because it's super cool and lentils taste better than steak. And I'm making lentils tonight for dinner. Wow. And I think I'm going to exclude the All bacon. right. We can wrap this now. episode up. All right. All right, everyone. Have a good day, night, afternoon. Bye. This was the Rehumanized Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Emiliato. The, uh, this is Herb and Phil, and we are signing off now. Goodbye. Goodbye.